Over the course of this episode, we're going to mention a few institutions in particular. But I want to say up front that this episode isn't about those institutions, or about any single institution. Instead, I want to invite you to consider your relationship to the institutions in your own life and to think critically and creatively about them. I'm Victoria Middleton, and this is Uncharted Territory. For millions of American students who go to college, higher ed serves as a sort of introduction to public life, through which we begin to understand our relationships to the systems of society beyond our nuclear family, the halls of our high schools, the streets of our hometowns. Yet, as we come into our alleged autonomy, we may encounter a dissonant realization that still so much is beyond our control. For those of my generation, the most essential foundations of our future. Breathable air, ample food, clean water, sustainable conditions for life, are laid before us as bargaining chips in a game that we are seemingly too young and too broke to play. I was in my final semester of undergrad at George Washington University, or GW, when a campus hub for the Sunrise Movement was formed. That was in the fall of 2019, and by that time, the youth-led Sunrise Movement was starting to make a name for itself in national politics. According to Vox, as of September 2019, Sunrise had a total of 290 hubs across the country. From its inception, Sunrise Movement was about shaking that metaphorical bargaining table and making demands for climate solutions. One of the foundational demands is that of fossil fuel divestment. Previously, divestment was used as a strategy by protesters in the U.S. and elsewhere of nonviolent action against the South African apartheid state. Starting in the 1960s, the demand, which germinated on U.S. college campuses, was for universities and other institutions to sell all stock invested in companies doing business in South Africa. From 1985 to 1990, the year negotiations to end apartheid began, more than 200 U.S. companies had cut South African financial ties. Inspired by the South African movement, the Palestinian-led Boycott Divestment Sanctions, or BDS movement, was launched in 2005 and continues today. The fossil fuel divestment movement takes the divestment strategy, demanding institutions cease to materially support a cause through investment, and applies that to the fossil fuel industry. The Sunrise Movement was not the first to do this. 350.org's Fossil Free campaign launched in 2012, and Fossil Free GW, which would eventually reassemble into Sunrise GW, was formed in 2013. Extinction Rebellion organizers are also leading divestment campaigns around the globe. In the summer of 2020, after years of student organizing, GW announced its commitment to full fossil fuel divestment by 2025. I met Sunrise GW organizer Victoria Freire shortly after the announcement. At the time, I talked to her about the divestment win and about Sunrise GW's ongoing campaign to defund the Regulatory Study Center, a research center on campus that receives funding from ExxonMobil and the Koch Network, according to a report by Public Citizen. I caught up with Victoria recently. So my name is Victoria Freire, um, and I'm a second year at GW. I am currently taking the semester off, um, but I'm still in uh, DC and I'm focusing full-time on organizing. So I'm involved in a couple different campaigns. Um, uh, currently working most, most frequently on uh, passing the For the People Act in Congress. And I'm also hub coordinator for Sunrise GW. Um, and I'm currently doing a lot of recruitment as well for uh, the PowerShift Network, which is a coalition organization. So I first met you when we talked last year following 
uh, GW's announcement that they were going to divest fully from fossil fuel. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how you first learned about the fossil fuel divestment movement and what inspired you to get involved with it. I think at the time that it was kind of random and that I was just kind of pulled in uh, by friends or people that thought I would be interested, but really that's kind of what organizing is. <laughs> it's very intentional. Um, I met someone in my intro to international affairs class who was involved with Sunrise and they dragged me to a meeting uh, one time and it was the first experience I had where at GW there was a group of students that was talking in a more radical sense of how to transform the school and the country. You know, I had like a one-on-one -on -one with one of the leaders in Sunrise and they talked to me about the Regulatory Studies Center at GW, which is, if you don't know, this Koch-funded, uh, ExxonMobil-funded, dark money-funded um, academic research center at GW, housed in the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences, that is pumping out climate denial research and has all of these just absolutely egregious claims about climate. Um, and as soon as I heard that, I, I was like, this is not only is this absolutely egregious, but it's just also like fascinating um, that these students like found out about this and that they want to take action and they're not being paid. They're not like, you know, having they don't have any incentive to do this. They just are really passionate about climate. I want to dig a little deeper into what you said about divestment being a radical political strategy. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you think like what is radical about divestment that's a good question i think that what i was referring to specifically was kind of this way of they gave this presentation at the time of how like we just need to mobilize like this amount of our campus if we want to achieve this goal like they were very much it's like this radical optimism that i saw that i hadn't really seen in other people on campus um, I think also just I had always been frustrated with like my administration in high school on how to take action on things and I would do things like make a petition or get people to sign or walk out um, to change things but to force the university's hand in uh, reevaluating their investments is just something that I think is like very, very powerful and uh, really crazy when you think about it. Like, even though it's it's common sense to ask your university that you attend that educates you to invest in things that will not be destroying your future <laughs> and um, and allowing for a livable planet to continue existing, I think that it's still really fascinating to see like a group of students um, making that demand of the administration. I'm not sure that that everyone really understands the fact that the universities have investments and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Why does a university have investments and who do you think stands to benefit from these investments? I think that typically the the way that they spend their money obviously has a great impact on students, but also um, it really shows where the priorities of like the president and provost and all these like really high paid positions actually um, they, they care much more about like the so-called prosperity of the university and like they they claim to need these profits in order to kind of offset the cost of not being a public university and receiving public funding. But it's also kind of interesting because uh, one of our arguments, which, you know, it was not the core argument we were making. We were, uh, for the most part, we wanted it to be a moral argument of like, you should divest because we, you should care about your students and so that we have a livable future. But there's also the argument of how fossil fuels are not smart investments. They're much more risky than renewables anyway. What kind of tactics did did you see used in organizing and what tactics do you think were most effective in this specific divestment campaign at GW? 
we kind of were just throwing stuff at, at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I think that you kind of have to do that um, because every admin is different and has different priorities and you can't really determine what they are until you get a reaction. Uh, first of all, obviously public support in any pressure campaign is very important. So we wanted, we wanted to make sure that there was always student support and that people were rallying alongside us, even if they weren't super involved with Sunrise. The other thing was, although this was surprising to us, it was leaning into the kind of bureaucratic policies or, or way of, of establishing things at the university. Like we thought that they would offer to talk with us or meet with us or establish a task force and that it would all just basically be for show. It would all be kind of a facade so that it would keep us quiet. But that just wasn't really the case. Like we we came to realize as it went along, particularly in February um, and like late January, that that is how change is made at this university. That doesn't go for every university, but um, the board of trustees does have to establish like some sort of probing task force to look into these recommendations. And then um, we once we did more research and found out that a task force recommends uh, a decision and the board of trustees almost always agrees with it and goes forward with it, then we realize that this is a lot more of um, an important or like a much more significant thing. You're talking about doing a pressure campaign. Could you kind of define that terminology for people who aren't familiar with it? A pressure campaign is generally when you realize there's a problem uh, within whether it be your working environment or your university, um, wherever you're planning on organizing. And the essential components of that are that you establish a target um, for us. I think that's a kind of a difficult uh, thing to do actually is to identify a target. Um, for us, it was the board of trustees, um, particularly more specifically the, the chair of the Board of Trustees, uh, Grace Bates. Um, and, you know, you have to create uh, a series of tactics on how exactly you're going to achieve the goal um, that will pressure your target. Um, and in order to do that, you have to create like an escalation arc um, of of things on, on how to how to create that pressure that eventually will build up so that your opponent will give in to your demands. That is also a very important part of a pressure campaign is that you have clear demands and how to um, how to achieve them. So for us, our demands were to fully divest from uh, fossil fuels as soon as possible, um, which you know we ended up achieving in June of 2020. And I believe the goal was um, that they would achieve full divestment by 2025, which was great news. But our second demand was also to close or cut ties with the Regulatory Study Center. A lot of times, the way that we're told to think about climate is through a sort of individual perspective. Why does it serve us to kind of look at it, take a step back, look at, say, like, a, an institution that we're a part of, like a university, rather than just focusing on individual actions. What is the benefit of that? What is the kind of strategy or the ideology of that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at when I was describing how, when I, when I was describing how they, I've attended this first meeting at Sunrise GW, and I, I thought that these people were more progressive or more radical in their perspectives was that they wanted to attack climate change from a more institutional perspective. And I had grown so fatigued by the, you know, the efforts of like these individual actions and how we can like make it, everything is just on, pressured on like, the individual and and whatever actions I take, um, whether it be recycling or reducing my single-use plastic intake, um, things like that. So I, I think that that's actually what really inspired me to want to continue. And I think that Sunrise Movement as a national organization has that perspective on a lot of things. 
and when I say Sunrise National, I don't mean that, I don't mean, you know, the people on staff that are like making decisions, but we have hundreds of hubs across the country that are taking action in their local communities. And they are not, you know, creating, I mean, they might be, but it's not the focus of their um, campaigns likely to be, you know, composting things in their backyards or uh, distributing like reusable um, utensils. I think that that might be like a part of their strategy and a part of something that they do, but every hub across the country is going to be attacking th attacking climate change and that huge issue that that exists um, in the world. They're going to be um, taking it from the angle of, you know, it's not our our fault as as individuals, but rather like you know, seventy two percent of um, global emissions are the fault of corporations. And if we're going to actually halt climate catastrophe, you know, individual actions may help, but that's not going to ultimately save us. Institutions of higher education aren't the only ones being asked to divest from fossil fuel. My next guest, Courtney Foster, participated in a divestment campaign targeted at the New England Aquarium. She's now on the political team at Sunrise Boston, working on state house transparency, and also works at a sustainability nonprofit. She asked me to make clear that she's speaking here as an individual and not to represent her employer or their views. I'm Courtney. I'm 24 years old and I'm living here in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, now I'm working at an environmental nonprofit in Boston called Ceres. I'm on the food and forest team and my research focuses a lot on natural climate solutions and corporate net zero commitments. My background in the climate movement is a bit more on the organizing side. Um, I started to get involved in the movement, organizing against a pipeline being built in the state of Massachusetts um, during the summer of uh, 2015. Um, then ended up returning and helping to organize a student-led uh, divestment campaign against the New England Aquarium. And this experience has definitely uh, contrasted somewhat with my professional experience here at Ceres. Um, we are a sustainability nonprofit that focuses on um, environmentalism and sustainability, but largely to influence um, mainstream investors and companies to change their commitments. And um, where this comes into play is that um, when we educate our investors about the climate movement and about ways that they can support sustainability, um, many believe that uh, divestment may actually be antithetical to the movement because if you, for instance, are a sustainability-minded investor and, and you get rid of your stocks in companies that are trying to leverage capital to transition their businesses, um, that might actually result in those shares being bought by a firm that has less of a concern for the environment and that could actually um, detriment their trajectory to building a net zero future. Um, both of these perspectives are, I think, really interesting. Um, and I'm certainly happy to answer any questions you might have about sort of these um, differing perspectives on divestment and how you might like to explore that. How about we kind of go sort of chronologically with your experience, starting with your experience as like a student organizer. You said that you worked on a divestment campaign aimed at an aquarium. That's, I've never heard of something like that. So what was the angle? How did that all start? I think it's funny you say that because when you think about actors that have divestment campaigns, you know, targeted at them, I think the last thing we would think of is like a sustainability minded public institution. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty unique thing about it. I was a, um, a senior fellow at uh, Better Future Project, which is also home of 350 Massachusetts here in Cambridge, Mass. Um, and we were taking on a cohort of uh, student organizers looking to sharpen their organizing skills, um, especially in environmental and sustainability related campaigns. Um, and an idea that had been percolating throughout staff 
um, was actually potentially to target the New England Aquarium um, for its investments in fossil fuel companies, which um, then makes up, you know, part of its stock portfolio. And I think that this is pretty interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, definitely, you see divestment campaigns being levied at many other, you know, do-good institutions, especially universities, sometimes cities, um, and potentially larger governments as well. Um, but to sort of look at the dichotomy of saying, you know, sustainability is your reason to be as an aquarium, you want to promote, you know, a healthy ocean ecosystem, and yet you are financing some of the biggest polluters and actors that are, you know, really detrimenting our hold on a sustainable future is a really interesting tactic to take. Um, and I know something that perhaps um, volunteers or workers at the aquarium would be um, a little bit peeved at just because the institution of the aquarium in Boston is known as being sort of a beacon of sustainability. But actually when, you know, when we tabled out on the street in front of the aquarium, um, asked folks walking by to sign a petition or take some of our art or a lit drop, um, people seemed really surprised to learn that the aquarium had these investments and they seemed really enthusiastic about getting the aquarium to change their practices. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that we may have gathered around 500 signatures um, just from one day um, standing outside in the Boston Harbor um, and ultimately ended up delivering them to the aquarium, um, which said that divestment would then become an elevated priority within their organization. Um, unfortunately, the way that this campaign was structured, we didn't really have capacity for oversight unless students had time to continue it once they went back to college. And because most folks were involved in their own campaigns led on campus, we didn't really have the capacity to sustain the um, sustain the movement much beyond that. But I think that um, the pressure that we applied to the aquarium um, and our efforts to highlight this issue um, still definitely made an impact, you know, not just for these students that were learning how to organize climate campaigns, but also for folks in the city of Boston and at the aquarium, knowing that, you know, they should still be continuing to strive to do better, even if um, their focus is on environment and sustainability. So you mentioned that the aquarium is a, a public entity, right? Yes. That's, and I guess that might not be, that may not be accurate. Um, I know that they're largely donor founded. I'm sure, I'm, sh I'm sure that they're funded by foundations as well. Um, but it's a, I guess, a publicly frequented entity. I guess I kind of compare it to like the library or to museums, which are very different. But it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a unique category of institution, I guess, if you ask me. How did you find out about the investments that this aquarium had? I think that perhaps it was our campaign leadership um, that had done a little bit of research um, into the funding of the aquarium. I think if you're a nonprofit, that makes it a little bit easier um, because you're sort of with, required to be a bit more transparent about your funding, um, especially if you're foundation funded or um, mm -hmm. if you have money coming from individual giving. Um, so perhaps that was also a reason why it was a bit different um, and perhaps we faced different challenges organizing against the aquarium versus, you know, a university. I'm really interested in something you said earlier, which is about aquariums, museums, universities as like do-good institutions. And I wonder if you have uh, like an opinion about the, like, should we hold certain institutions to maybe, um, a higher expectation and do you have any thoughts about what like what role do these institutions play within a, the broader community and do they have an obligation to do something in terms of the climate crisis that is such an important question and it's something that i think students are thinking about more and more um i think about the um the the campaign to get uh, the Koch brothers' influence off of so many college campuses, including GW, um, which has quite a bit of funding um, from Koch institutions, as well as Tufts, George Mason, and many others, um, and students organizing um, to try to get that money out of the system or to try to close, um, you know, centers for study that are really industry driven, that are really intended to drive a certain outcome, um, you know, be it corporate profits or certain study results. 
Um, we saw this also taking place at Tufts when you looked at the influence of the Sacklers and how that really percolated and caused a, a major concern among students, especially medical students, but you know, a concern that was actually heard across the country as the story became national about the influence of the Sacklers in um, the opioid crisis um, and in the way that it shaped healthcare really massively. I think that students are increasingly seeing that institutions are not only there to serve them, but that they also need to be a force for good. And students and I think alumnus alike are really trying to work towards that. Um, I think about also the Harvard Forward campaign, which is a group of alumnus sort of running for leadership positions there. Mm -hmm. um, and they are hoping to influence um, how Harvard structures its investments and other organizational priorities. Um, I think not only do people think that it's the right thing to do, but I think that it's related to the social license to operate for these institutions and ultimately to sort of attract the best talent. Um, I know a lot of students will be thinking about, you know, when they go to college or when they get their first job, um, what the actions are of their university or of their employer and that those sorts of things do make a, a difference in terms of where students decide to go, um, you know, where they spend their money and who they spend their time working for. And I think that with the influence of um, social media and other structures that allow people to communicate about these things, I think that the influence of that mindset is only going to continue to grow um, and hopefully um, universities will only continue to respond to that, you know, in more positive ways and taking more aggressive steps um, to act. You got at something there, which is uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of divestment campaigns, which is thinking about like, what is the relationship between an individual and an institution? Like, what's the relationship between a student and a university or a a citizen of a city and the, you know, institutions like museums, aquariums, libraries, et cetera, within that city. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that they have, you know, really important and pivotal roles and that there's kind of this dichotomy being exposed because ultimately people look at these institutions as kind of existing for the public good, but also based on the fact that they have to survive, there's you know, always going to be some problematic dynamics. I know, for instance, we talk about, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex and how nonprofits need to fundraise, you know, not just to do good work, but also because their own survival depends on it and how that can influence um, the priorities and the activities of these organizations. And I think that it's really up to the public to sort of hold their feet to the fire and make sure that um, as much as what they do um, is done responsibly um, and as a force for good. Um, and that's where sort of this feedback loop between, you know, public campaigners, especially young people today, and these institutions and their behaviors, I think, is only starting to kind of pick up um, in a really impactful and important way. Divestment is not new, as you mentioned, but it really feels like it's it's having a moment right now in terms of the climate crisis. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about like why our our generation is maybe drawn to divestment as as a tool in our tool belt. I think it's interesting that college mm -hmm. divestment campaigns have been going mm -hmm. on in this era for you know maybe like a decade and it started out being a trickle of organizations doing this a trickle of movements and sort of a trickle of commitments that didn't really start until pretty recently and so it's interesting to see you know organizers that are now much older that started their college divestment campaigns now you know 10 or 15 years later like seeing the fruits of their labor come to fruition when their institution finally decides to divest um, i think that it's related to um I guess um, the demands of the public and of, of students and faculty that now suddenly these institutions are starting to flip the switch. I think that the reality of the climate crisis and the ability of people to sort of draw connections between different financial flows and the trajectory of the crisis is now something that's only increased with, you know, increased investigative journalism and resources devoted to tracing these things and raising awareness about it. And 
when I first heard about divestment campaigns, I wasn't super sure that it was, you know, a really useful tactic just because I thought that institutions wouldn't ultimately divest in most cases, which now is sort of proving to be the case. Um, not as rather not proving to be the case now that a lot of institutions are seeing other peers do it and then they're doing it themselves. Um, but I think that the real, um, the real point of the campaign ultimately wasn't necessarily that it's only a win if the institution divests. I think that it was also about raising awareness about the climate crisis and publicity around mm -hmm. the activities that these universities or other institutions undertake that are sort of behind the radar. Um, and so um, generating that publicity and sort of generating that naming and shaming around, you know, fossil fuel companies and other actors from which we're trying to divest to try to sort of shift the needle on public favorability of these institutions was also a, just as much a primary goal. And it took me sort of many years learning about divestment to start to understand that. Although now on the flip side, the actual literal goal of these movements oftentimes is being met with sort of a spat of institutions, especially universities across the US and across the world now actually choosing to pursue divestment, be it for climate purposes, um, be it uh, for for-profit prisons, you know, the military industrial complex or for so many other causes that people have raised. I wanna make sure that um, we can talk a little bit about your current employer's thoughts as well, because I think that's a really interesting perspective guess to clarify, you know, I'm speaking from common public perspective, and I'm not necessarily, you know, saying this as a spokesperson of, of my current employer, although I think that my current employer agrees with this perspective, is that um, investors that invest in publicly held companies then have some say in what those companies do and in the oversight of those companies. And say, if you were to come to the table as somebody that holds a lot of money in that company and demands change in that company, perhaps you would be listened to more than you know a grassroots organizer to a certain extent. Um, maybe if you say, you know, I don't think that investing in fossil fuels is a good use of my money because fossil fuels are going out the window. And if you continue on this trajectory, I'm going to consider having to pull my, my investments and invest elsewhere. That can kind of put the company's feet to the fire and make them change their practices so that they can fulfill the fiduciary duty that they have um, to their investors. And this is a perspective that is pretty nuanced and that I never really knew about before getting involved in the world of investor and corporate sustainability. And I'm not sure that's necessarily one that I would always agree with either, but it's a really interesting counterpoint in this debate about divestment, about how choosing when to divest and how to do it um, in order to gain the most impact is, is a really interesting sort of thing to consider that I wouldn't have thought of before. Do you know if there's any historical precedents of, of that kind of corporate power being yielded or if that and there's any examples of that happening at the moment? Sure. Um, one initiative that I know of is called Climate 100 Plus, Climate Action 100 Plus or CA 100 Plus. And it's a campaign led by um, multi-stakeholder initiatives and largely sort of institutional investors around the world aimed at the 100 plus largest publicly traded companies that have the largest emissions profiles. Um, and they are working to engage with those companies and persuade them to change their policies to favor, you know, a true, you know, zero carbon future and responsible spending and decisions at the managerial and board level. Um, and I think that this has been slow moving as many campaigns are, but that suddenly a lot of oil companies, even ones within the US that have been reluctant to even acknowledge that climate change is real, are now starting to sort of tip the scales and realize that their investors want them to be doing this. We're generally laggards over here in the US compared to even European countries that are, have companies in them that are still not doing enough. Um, but when you see companies like even ExxonMobil outlining a climate scenario, it's not necessarily that, you know, the global investors and those with power and wealth are doing one thing. 
and that grassroots organizers are doing something entirely different. I think that it's all kind of part of the same ecosystem of change. Um, if you didn't have the grassroots organizers really pushing to change these practices, um, then the investors wouldn't see, you know, reputation risk to these companies that risk having a dented image because they fail to act on climate or risking, you know, their future workforce because young people no longer want to work for a company like them. So I think that, I think that these spheres of action are, are connected, although they are taking place kind of in different arenas. In January of 2021, Columbia University, which held no direct investments in oil and gas, announced a formalized policy to not make any new investments in publicly traded oil and gas companies or in private funds that largely benefit those businesses. The announcement coincided with the first day of a tuition strike by Columbia students who had set forth a list of demands, including a tuition reduction, increased financial aid, union recognition for student workers, safety solutions that prioritize the safety of Black students and local residents of the West Harlem community, complete transparency around university investments, and for the university to respect student referendums in support of BDS, and, yes, complete fossil fuel divestment. The strike was led by the Columbia Barnard Young Democratic Socialists of America, or YDSA. Interested to hear more about the connection between fossil fuel divestment and the strike's other demands, I talked with YDSA organizer and student of Columbia Teachers College, Emmeline Bennett. I'm Emmeline, uh, she, her. I'm a student at Columbia Teachers College, um, and I was the co-chair of Columbia YDSA, I'm now secretary, um, and I'm also on the YDSA National Coordinating Committee and uh, involved in our national political education as well. Um, and uh, I've been, you know, really involved in the tuition strike that, you know, our YDSA chapter started up uh, last semester. Um, we kind of started it as like trying to sort of organize around an issue that we felt was very much like impacting everyone at the university in terms of like tuition costs and just like the cost of attendance more broadly. Um, and then it sort of broadened out to a lot of issues that people uh, had been organizing around for a long time. Uh, and especially in the past few years around, around issues of anti-racism, around issues of labor rights on campus, um, and also around um, divestment, both fossil fuel divestment, and also um, divestment from companies involved in Israeli apartheid. For people who maybe haven't heard of a tuition strike before, could you introduce us to the concept a little bit? You know, it didn't start out as a tuition strike. It started out as like we were trying to just like organize people around the issues. So we had like a petition kind of saying like that Columbia should lower tuition by 10% and increase financial aid by the same amount. But, you know, we were socialists, right? So we had an analysis of Columbia's a very wealthy institution that wouldn't really like listen to students' demands um, unless we actually like did something that impacted their bottom line, their profits, because that's kind of like what they care about. Um, so that's when we had the idea of a tuition strike. And we aren't like the first people to do this. There's some precedent for it, like University of Chicago students did it last semester with like 200 people. Um, and then there are some examples even in the past before that, um, like University of Michigan, there was a very large tuition strike involving like over a thousand people in like 1973. But uh, I mean, the basic concept is just like, basically just not paying tuition, you know, similar to a RIN strike, for instance. Um, and a lot of people like criticized us and said like, oh, you're using the word strike in the wrong way. And like, it's like, trust us, we're socialists, we know what a strike is. Any sort of like collective action that is trying to have a disruptive impact on an institution. And a rent strike works exactly the same way. You know, you're, you're just not making your rent payment. Um, and because you're doing that as a collective action um, and because you're doing it as a way to like try to uh, damage a certain institution 
in order for them to meet your demands. Um, it is it is like a, a form of strike and a tuition strike is the same exact way where you're trying to get as many students on board as possible to withholding your tuition payments. Um, and at Columbia, it was uh, very much like possible for us to do that without necessarily like jeopardizing people's um, student status or like their classes or their graduation or anything because of the, you know, we did a lot of research into like how exactly does uh, the, the sort of policies work in terms of like how Columbia penalizes students for not paying. Um, and it became very clear from like their website that it was really just like, you know, you get a late fee, um, but even like the late fees, they were giving sort of promises that they would be waived for the pandemic. Uh, and besides that, there, there weren't really any like real consequences for like multiple months when it would start having an impact on like students registration status. Um, but because we decided that it was relatively low risk, uh, that it was something that that was viable to organize people around and that it could potentially have a financial impact on the university because that's revenue that they would ordinarily be able to count on that they wouldn't be getting. Uh, and so that that would really like have like an impact on uh, how likely they would be to meet our demands. And I think that that was uh, that was sort of borne out in their response to us during the tuition strike. How was it in terms of, of getting people on board with this? Was Were people afraid of like potential outcomes? Were they, you know, energized by this? Like what kind of responses did you get? Yeah, I think, I think it was very difficult to build momentum at first um, because it was so unprecedented and so sort of untested that people didn't really take it seriously at first. Um, we had a lot of people who were kind of, I guess, like criticizing us or kind of like saying like, this is not a serious tactic. Um, but I think there was a sort of turning point when we had, we found ways to get in touch with students beyond just students that we'd already sort of been in touch with or who were already in our base and actually like reach out to students uh, en masse. Um, and that's when it became clear that this was an issue that really resonated with people. Um, and it was quite astonishing to me personally when, you know, we would send out emails to students that we had, you know, had no prior contact with, probably didn't even know what YDSA was. Um, and it was just, you know, one email from us uh, asking them to, to do something that was quite uh, extraordinary to like withhold their tuition payments uh, as like a collective action with other students. And, you know, there was, you know, no guarantee at that time of like how many students would be doing this. We would, we would just say like, would you be willing to do this if a thousand other students joined? We didn't have a thousand other students at the time that we started sending those emails out. Um, but so many people like signed up like overnight um, when we like sent out these emails, like explaining what the demands were, like what the issues were and sort of what our, what our proposal was for like how we would take action to change those issues. And I think that it really speaks to like just how much people are looking for any sense of sort of empowerment or like sense that they can like stand together with people to change things. And I feel like being a student, you often have so little like influence over what administrations do uh, that people, it really appealed to people because it, it was sort of like a way that we could have power together. Yeah, I mean, as soon as people started signing on when we when we would reach out to people that way, um, the numbers just kind of like grew rapidly and was extremely like invigorating in those like couple like in that like week or two period where people were just like signing on in huge numbers and we went from, you know, one day we were 200 people, the next day we were 500 people, the day after that we were a thousand people, uh, the day after that it was like 1,500 and then it just like two weeks afterwards, like it was, it was already at like over 4,000. I want to get back to something that you mentioned kind of at the top, which is that you had all of these demands for the tuition strike. And I wonder what the motivation or perhaps the strategy was in, you know, putting together such a, a wide list of demands. The first thing I think that's important is like it, it wasn't just like us as organizers making that decision. No, clearly, there, we did have a lot of like internal debates um, about the strategy, um, but it was it, we tried to make 
every decision that we made during the tuition strike as democratic as possible, given the base that we had at each particular stage. Our initial step in the campaign was, you know, this petition about tuition reduction. And that was, of course, like very like focused because it was just a petition. Um, we didn't have much leverage. And so we were just kind of putting the demands out there and trying to, or trying to organize people. But when we came to the points where we decided on the tuition strike as a tactic, we kind of like realized like the tuition strike is a tactic that could potentially be used to advance, you know, any kind of demand. And we thought of it, especially in terms of like all of these campaigns that we had been uh, organizing in solidarity with, um, you know, throughout our existence. Our, our writing state chapter has only existed for the past year, but like we uh, have been involved and we led, helped lead a solidarity effort with the Gravercus uh, strike back in a year ago. Um, and we, you know, we had been strategizing with mobilized African diaspora, which had put forward a series of demands around uh, policing and racism um, over the summer. And we, you know, had been organizing in support of the um, apartheid divest referendum vote at Columbia College that same semester. Um, so we wanted to think about how to like advance these like student demands more broadly. And that's when, you know, we had the idea of like, just like including them uh, in this tuition strike because uh, at least like my thinking around it was that, uh, and you know, there were different opinions uh, among the organizers um, and among the people who were involved in the campaign um, around this issue. But like my thinking was that, that it, we would benefit from putting forward like a broad vision around like how we should democratize the university and how we should make the university receptive to the demands that students were putting forward. Like my thinking is that people feel more, I guess like motivated or inspired to take collective action when they feel like they're fighting for something kind of like larger than themselves, um, but also something that like affects them personally. Like I feel like both elements are really crucial. So I think that we would not have been such a huge movement if we had not had the demand for reduced tuition or increased financial aid or reducing the student contribution, all of those demands that uh, you know impacted people personally um, in a very direct way. But I think that we also would not have been as large of a movement if we hadn't had demands around fossil fuel divestment and you know, anti-racism and everything else, because I think that it led people to feel like they were fighting for something more than just you know, a few extra thousand dollars, that they were also fighting for all these other like issues that were connected to broader issues in our society. That was also true for the tuition reduction demand, because it's also a matter of like, you know, who is higher education for like the fact of like higher education being so unaffordable and like people having to deal with so much student debt. So it's not like that was devoid of any other like societal, broader societal impact either. But I think that connecting all, across all of these issues is really important. And I think it also allowed us to sort of advance the, the sort of analysis that we wanted to advance of the sort of forces within the university or like the political economy of the university of like, why is tuition at Columbia so expensive? And of course there's like one narrative that Columbia wants, the administration wants to put forward of, oh, tuition is so expensive because like, you know, we have to like pay our professors and our grad workers and, uh, and like, this is like really high education, high quality education that we're offering you. So that's the narrative that they want to put forward. But of course, like we know that wages for grad workers um, and wages for adjunct professors have remained stagnant, whereas tuition has, you know, skyrocketed. So like, what's the explanation for that? And it's because Columbia is spending its money on all these other things that not only don't have anything to do with our, the quality of our education, but also like actively go against uh, the interests of a lot of students for, uh, for example, investing in companies that prop up like human rights abuses um, or you know contribute to climate change um, or you know actually investing 
money and like building campuses that gentrify the surrounding neighborhood or investing in union busting law firms that uh, make it so that grad workers can't have a living wage. Um, so like all of these issues were interconnected because they all had to do with like how the university is allocating its resources. Um, and so like we couldn't talk about the issue of tuition without talking about all these other things as well. So it just made sense to include it as like part of the demands um, as was at least the way that we saw it. Um, and we, we, we tried to make it like as democratic as a, a process as possible because you know that's how movements are successful. Um, so we like surveyed people throughout the campaign trying to see like you know like how what what level of support each of the demands had and they all had a lot of support so it's not like it was just like us socialists like tacking on all these other demands and like the only popular demand was tuition reduction like there were broad levels of majority support for like every one of these demands among uh the 4,000 people that we organized um so like it they were all sort of like deeply felt demands um in that sense what do you see as like the current reality of the relationship between student and university and how does it differ from what it would be in your ideal world? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way that the higher education system is set up now, it's very much like like students are positioned as consumers of a commodity and like the idea is that like you are paying like the certain amount of tuition or more realistically going into a certain amount of debt um, to like basically consume a product and that this is sort of like seen as like a quote unquote investment like you're you're investing in this to like enjoy some sort of like career advantage this is kind of like you know how capitalism wants us to see education and I, I think that that has like implications for sort of like how universities are structured, like the re relationship between students and the administration. I think that this is like something that came out of a lot of the sort of like right wing rhetoric about the against the tuition strike was like, oh, like this is Columbia, you know, you chose to go there, you know, you could have gone to another school. Uh, this is dumb because the university is just gonna, you know. Uh, admit all these other students to take your spot um, and like kick you out because there's tons of students who would want to go to Columbia. So that's kind of like the sort of right-wing rhetoric that we saw against it. Um, and of course, it's totally, it totally misses the point in the sense of like, for one thing, it totally misunderstands what the actual risks of going on tuition strike were. Like Columbia was not going to kick us out and it's not used to think that that would have been a smart move on their part. And second, it's sort of, uh, it kind of totally misses the the systemic problem that we were trying to point to, which was like, yes, okay, Columbia's more expensive than other schools, but that's not really the most important part. The most important part is that literally anywhere else that we would have gone to, we would have had the same problem because tuition is high everywhere, including at public universities. Um, and that's like precisely the problem that we're trying to organize against. And actually the fact that a university like Columbia can charge so much in tuition is directly contributing to the fact that tuition everywhere is so expensive um, because when a private university can like charge so much in tuition and then get it you know kind of get subsidized by financial aid in a certain way that just sort of like draws even more funds away from public universities and likewise if, if public universities were completely free um, then private universities like Columbia would not be able to charge nearly so much so these are interconnected issues and it's it's a systemic problem that's kind of like the capitalist version of education. And it, it means that there's basically like no sort of democratic, there's no like rationale for like why students would have any sort of democratic say in the university. Because instead of seeing it as like a structure where people are like producing their own education and sort of like engaging in it, you know, in a sort of dialogue with their professors and their instructors. Um, instead it's like seen as like people producing a, uh, consuming a commodity. And that in turn, like, feeds into this mythology of like, oh, people could just go to another university if they don't like it here. But of course, like, that doesn't make any sense because like no university is going to have like real democracy. So it's like not like there's any like real choices for us. So I think in contrast to that vision would be like a, what we could say a socialist vision of higher education would be 
of course, like the immediate material thing is getting rid of tuition and no more distinction between public and private universities. Everything um, is public, socially controlled um, and totally free. But then I think there would also be a difference in like how universities would be structured in terms of like it would be like fully democratized in the sense of like students can have a say in where the university is spending its resources. Um, instructors would also have a say, the surrounding community would also have a say, and it wouldn't just be this like small group of like board of trustees who are like multimillionaires, like making all these decisions and uh, paying administrators multimillion dollar salaries um, and having absolutely no accountability so that even when they're like these massive student movements, they can just kind of ignore them. And I think that the other difference would be like education would no longer, because of those material changes, like education would no longer be seen as a commodity that people are just sort of like passively consuming, but rather it's like education is something that is ideally going to help us like actualize ourselves as human beings and sort of like actually reach our full potential and like explore our interests. Um, and it's not just going to be something to sort of like give ourselves a career advantage or uh, like make ourselves a more desirable worker or something like that. And I think that, that that's why like it has to be accom accompanied by sort of broader shifts in society as well, um, where you don't have the same sort of like pressure that you do in a capitalist society and you actually have the sort of like freedom and like ability to just kind of like engage in education for its own sake rather than uh, as a sort of means to an end. Are we able to have a university that isn't investing in things like fossil fuel and you know using what is essentially our money and all of these ways that we don't agree with do you think is there is there a way to have that kind of university in you know not only a capitalist society but it's a society where we have so many private universities yeah, I mean, I'm personally skeptical that that could be possible. I think, I think as always, like, you know, there's a possibility for sort of like partial reforms. Uh, and I think that there have been like exciting developments in the sense of like universities being receptive to student movements. Um, so, I mean, we've seen some precedents for this at Columbia in terms of like, you know, students won prison divestment, you know, a, a few years ago. Um, and like we got some concessions from our tuition strike as well as you know the efforts of earlier activists before us and fossil fuel investment you know increased financial aid uh, and I think that you know there's also the possibility for like you know increased democratic structures but I think like ultimately like as long as we're operating in a system where uh, universities are like privately owned um, and sort of like operated by a relatively small group of like board of trustees. I think that there's like, it's not that we can't win concessions. It's just that every single concession that we win has to come at the expense of like so much organizing um, and so much pressure on them. And like, even when we like, just like organize extremely powerful movements and have a lot of pressure, like the concessions that we win are always sort of like just below like, or far below like what we're what we're advocating for um so I think that like it is possible to sort of uh when concessions are like make universities more accountable but it's like it always has to come so long as it's like you know private universities under capitalism like it always is it always has to come at the expense of organizing and it and this is what makes student movements so difficult to sustain is that even when there's like formal mechanisms of democracy, like they're kind of like not really, not real democracy. Um, because the university has no like uh, obligation to like listen to students, um, even when they formally say like, okay, like we have this like committee for students to, to like join and like give us a say, like, you know, they're not really like obligated in any certain sense to like listen to what students say. And so like every every sort of like bit of accountability has to come from students organizing. And of course, that's like difficult to sustain um, over a long period of time. And like students graduate and uh, people, activists get burnt out and all of that sort of thing. 
so I think that like if we if we want to actually like make universities like fully democratic and like actually uh, accountable to like students, um, instructors, um, and the community in like a real sense, I think that we would have to have a more systemic change in terms of how the university system functions, like who controls it, who it's sort of made for, um, as well as just like society more broadly. Um, so I think that like we can we can sort of both be organizing for like reforms under the existing system and also sort of recognize that there are sort of always going to be limitations to that unless we have a broader change in society. I want to thank Victoria, Courtney, and Emmeline for sharing their time and perspectives with me for this episode. And thank you, our listeners, for supporting the show. I also want your thoughts on the divestment movement and on this episode. You'll find links in the show notes. Uncharted Territory is produced independently by myself and my co-hosts, Charlie Olson and Louisa Kiani. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your pals. You can also support us by subscribing to our Patreon or leaving tips in our tip jar. Until next time, I'm Victoria Middleton, and this is Uncharted Territory.